Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Greetings, this is Rob Hartzler from TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today on the podcast, we have the honor of hearing from Dr. Jim Lubowitz, Editor-in-Chief of Arthroscopy, the Journal of Arthroscopic and Related Surgery. Dr. Lubowitz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to be discussing your recent editorial from the July 2019 issue of the journal entitled, Our Measure of Medical Research Should Be Appreciable Benefit to the Patient. This podcast will give us the opportunity to expose the seedy underbelly of arthroscopy and to get inside the brain of the man behind the curtain of the journal. Dr. Lubowitz, are you ready? Yes, I am. So we're going to start off by just to give um, our listeners an idea of who you are not everyone may know your biography. Just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of your career and how you became editor of the journal. Well, I will do that. Uh, first, I do want to give credit to my assistant editor-in-chief of Arthroscopy Journal, who were co-authors on the editorial, Dr. Jeff Brand and Dr. Michael Rossi. In terms of my background, I did the typical orthopedic residency, uh, sports fellowship, and then established a practice in Taos, New Mexico, where I practiced for 24 years until two years ago when I went full-time as editor-in-chief now of our three journals, including Arthroscopy Techniques and Arthroscopy Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation, which are companions to the beloved Green Journal. During fellowship, I did some research. In my early years in practice, I had a opportunity to present at an ANA meeting. I attended the journal course for reviewers, which is now for writers and reviewers. I think it was the inaugural course, and I signed up to be a reviewer. And over the years, um, Editor-in-Chief Paling recognized my passion for the work, and I was a good fit for the editorial work. Based on my background, I was an art history major in college, which was pretty much liberal arts and a closet pre-med. So I had a, a broad educational background where I read a lot and wrote a lot and, and a bit of a renaissance um, experience. And at any rate, I was promoted to associate editor and assistant editor and now Editor-in-Chief for Journals and Meritocracy and the entire team of reviewers, editorial board, associate editors on up function based on the quality and timeliness of the reviews, and, and that's how they're recognized. So you're Editor-in-Chief for life now, is that right? I am. <laughs> there are no term limits, and I would like to continue to do it for uh, some years. I'm. 57 years old next month, and I still have a great deal of energy. We're constantly developing new programs, including these podcasts, and I feel like I'm, I can't say just getting started. I'm in my fifth year as editor-in-chief. I feel like we inherited an incredible journal from Dr. Paling. I think we continue to improve the journal, and I think we can continue to improve. Excellent. Well, this is our inaugural podcast featuring an editorial. 
So um, you were the main author on, the, on this editorial, is that correct? I was. It seems to me that there's actually been a proliferation of editorial content in the journal. Is that your sense, and why is that? Yeah, well, we've had a monthly editorial for some time now, and occasionally, uh, with the exception of January, where it seems typical, where we have awards and introduce new editors, we'll have more than one. But in addition to the formal editorial at the front of the journal, we now have editorial commentary on most articles. This was a program we started to make the journal more clinically relevant because the commentaries, like the podcasts, sort of include the asterisks, what they don't tell you until it's too late. Tips, pearls, cost, value, relevance to your practice, how to introduce something to your practice. And so by having an expert write a commentary on the articles gives another point of view. It puts it in context for readers. And the goal, like these podcasts, is to have it be conversational, even if it's a one-way conversation, hopefully answering the very questions that our readers might have. You know, it was interesting. I was looking back and and preparing for the podcast at the things you've written over the years. You've been writing about levels of evidence and evidence-based medicine for a really long time now. In 2004, you wrote about the levels of evidence and you said that as an alternative to the concept that level levels of evidence represent a hierarchy of quality and then went on to talk a little bit about level five evidence and four and how important that was. It it just seems to me um, like the arthroscopy journal features a lot of level five evidence. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think level of evidence is only one measure of the quality of an article. And randomized controlled trials are extremely valuable, but expert opinion is also very valuable. I'm going to quote a former ANA president, Don Johnson, who said half of what we read in the literature is wrong. We just don't know which half. And so to augment the articles with expert opinion of people who have studied, researched, treated patients with a specific problem and specialty expertise for a number of years can be extremely valuable as any clinician would understand. Yeah, there's so many pitfalls in the process of producing the medical the medical literature. There's pitfalls for authors and readers. There are. In fact, one concept which I think will be a good lead-in to this editorial, and it's a term I didn't mention in the editorial, is generalizability coming from the root word general. And generalizability really means can an article that you read, which may talk about a large group of patients treated by a different surgeon at a different time in a different city, perhaps with subtle variations or distinct variations in technique, can that be applied or generalized to your practice? And let's not even talk about your practice. Let's say you're doing 10 shoulder surgeries in a week. Can it be generalized to patient number three? 
because that really is the clinical relevance of the article for the people who matter most, which are the patients we're treating. And so looking at different ways of reporting patient outcome and alluding to the title of this study, how should we measure medical research? What should our outcome measure be? It should be benefit to the patient. And let's throw another word in there. It should be appreciable benefit to the patient. Surgery is a big deal. There's risks, there's cost, there's time to recover, there's all kinds of logistics. Patients are having surgery because they want to benefit, because they want to get better significantly or appreciably better. And so that's something to think about and that's something we're going to talk about. And then very related to that is when we start talking about a group of patients who are included in a study that you read in the journal um, that was written by someone, not you, in your practice, is that generalizable to the patient sitting across from you at 2.30 in the afternoon on Tuesday on the exam table when you're about to recommend a surgery and tell him or her? what the expected outcome could be. So this article was cast as a tool for readers. The take-home message of the article was specified as statistically significant difference may not be clinically relevant. Flesh out that idea for us. Great question, Rob. Let me start by pointing out reference three of my editorial by Josh Harris and co-authors on clinical versus statistical significance. Because Their take-home message was statistically significant difference may not be clinically relevant. They're the ones who wrote patients don't care about their p-values. And this is the theme that I picked up in our editorial. P-value is just a number. Statistical significance is just a number. My former fellow and former partner, who's now the fellowship director in Taos and a member of ANA, Jeb Reed, taught me when he was my fellow back in the day, if you beat the statistics hard enough, they will confess to anything. And obviously, there's some humor behind that. But the point being is that if you dig and dig and dig, you can play with the numbers to find something that's quote, statistically, end quote, significant. But let's generalize this to patients, and then let's make it specific to the patient I already alluded to you, sitting on your exam table. They don't want to know the p-value. They want to know, is this surgery going to help me? Let's talk a little bit about the issue of objective surgeon-reported outcomes versus subjective patient-reported outcome measures. Not too long ago, 10 or 15 years, most articles on knee anterior cruciate ligament, for instance, would describe the Lachman test or the International Knee Documentation Committee score, which was based on the Lachman test and the pivot shift and range of motion. These, that could be the only outcome measure And these are based on outcomes recorded by the surgeon. And that's the goal, to create a stable knee that you could measure with a KT-1000 or pivot shift test. And patient-reported outcomes 
were called subjective, which indicates bias or of lower consequence. And now we realize that's not the case. I had had more than one patient who I did an ACL surgery on, and much to my regret in the clinic, the ligament felt a little bit loose. But the patient was thrilled. She was skiing. He was playing soccer. They had no symptoms. They had returned to the highest level of sport. And so regardless of what the pivot shift showed, the patient was satisfied, appreciative, thrilled, active, and achieved their goals and recommending to their friends that they come to have a similar treatment if they had a similar injury. And so I think in modern times, we understand, at least I do, that patient-reported outcome measures should not be called subjective, and I don't think we do anymore. We call them P-R-O-M, patient-reported outcome measures, and I think that those should be primary. So when authors are designing research studies, we should have patient-reported outcome measures as being the primary outcome measure of the research study. Is that right? Yes, I think so. I think that the patient-reported outcome measure should be the primary outcome of the research. And what we're going to continue to talk about, maybe the research should be designed to not just report the measure, but whether using that measure, the patients in the study achieved a meaningful difference, a minimal clinically important difference, whether they achieved a patient-acceptable satisfactory state, whether they achieved a substantial clinical benefit. Or to put it in vernacular, whether the patients after their treatment, in our case frequently surgery, whether they were satisfied, yes, they were, or no, they were not. I think that we're all starting to get more familiar with those ideas. Minimal clinical important difference, MCID, substantial clinical benefit, SCB, patient acceptable symptomatic state, PASS. An idea that I got from the editorial that I had not seen before was this idea of proportional reporting of those. Can you describe that to us? Yeah, that's a great question, and and congratulations for saying all three of those abbreviations and the names of them. It's quite a mouthful, and you did it well. In terms of proportional reporting, what we wrote in the editorial was there is no gray area for each individual patient. They're either satisfied or they're not. They're either better or they're not. So studies that say the mean pain improvement met the MCID, mean being average, the average improvement met the minimal clinically important difference, are reporting the data incorrectly and it could be misleading because if the patient outcomes are not distributed on a perfect bell curve, which they're almost always not, and if there are outliers where one or two patients had no improvement in excruciating pain or a few patients had zero pain, the average score can be misleading. And really, the proportion or percentage is what matters, 
And you can think about using that in your clinic when you're talking to a patient. If you can say 90% of patients who had this surgery were satisfied afterwards, that's valuable information. Yeah, I think that's extraordinarily valuable. And I think for many patients, that might be all that they really need to know about the surgery. Yeah, for the patients and taking a step back for us as surgeons. If we know that there's a 95% chance that this patient is going to be better, that's very helpful. If I can digress for a second, I'm going to come back to the point about generalizability. We just have to remember about generalizability because if you read an article by someone who operates on patients who are mostly geriatric and your practice involves patients who are mostly athletic, just to give one example, then the numbers may be different. So when we are readers, and this article was introduced as a tool for readers, we have to pay a little attention to kind of what we learned about how to write a newspaper article in grade school, who, what, where, when, why, who did the surgery, who wrote the article, what technique did they use, where did they do it? Was it a university? Was it private practice? When in their practice had they done just five of them and they were on the learning curve or had they done 500? And why was it or who were they operating on? Was it to get someone back to pro sports or was it to get someone back to, let's say it was a knee surgery, being on their feet all day doing arthroscopy like many of our listeners do? Or was it getting them back to being a hand surgeon where they work sitting down? So the generalizability is still important. Be that as it may, when you're reporting whether the patients were satisfied or not, the take-home message is what percent were satisfied. Well, we've got four sports medicine fellows here that just started in in our practice, and um, now they've got a lot to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is going to be valuable for researchers. It's going to be valuable for readers. I think that most of us many years ago did not formally measure outcome. And hopefully now most of us are at least asking a one question, are you satisfied or not? Sane score, one number, how would you rate your knee if zero was the worst and 100 was perfect? Questions like that. It's so valuable because then you can go back and look at it later. You can look at it with your patient or you can take a broader look at a large group of your patients to look at your practice. Yeah, it's almost like we've made it a little bit too complex. I mean, when I started my practice, you know, I made a shoulder sheet that that collects all kinds of different stuff. It, it collects ASES score and it collects VAS pain and, and it actually does collect, thankfully, patient satisfaction. But um, is it maybe it's enough to just ask them the SANE score and, and are they satisfied? Yeah, it's very valuable. And one scenario, which we all know, is when a patient comes into your office and they're like, I still have a little bit of aching 
when I run five miles or in the shoulder, you know, after working all day and they rate their shoulder, not a hundred, not the perfect shoulder, but let's say it's an 86 and you can go back and say, well, the first day I met you, you rated your shoulder a zero. You couldn't work. And, and that's helpful for everyone. So do you have any articles that we can use it as, as examples of where this was done well? In preparation for the podcast, I turned to the first article in the August issue of Arthroscopy by McIntyre and colleagues about a, a patch, a collagen implant for partial and full thickness rotator cuff tears. And when you turn to the results of this article, they report their outcomes just in the manner that we were speaking about. In the partial thickness group, 84% reported improvement of VAS that met the MCID. 83% MCID for ASES score. For the full thickness, 72 and 77 percent for VAS and ASES. So that's valuable information. If you're going to treat a patient with a similar pathology, like a partial thickness rotator cuff tear, with a similar implant, you can tell them that there's an 84 percent chance that their pain is going to be better. And not just a little better, but clinically important difference. Better, they'll notice, and they'll be pleased. Excellent. Well, any other closing thoughts on this issue? My closing thoughts would be that it's going to take us time to change the way we measure and report outcome. And with the patient in mind, when we're performing research or when we're reading an article, I think that we can try to pay attention to what matters to them. And that's substantial benefit after treatment. This article from the July 2019 issue of the journal entitled, Our Measure of Medical Research Should Be Appreciable Benefit to the Patient, can be downloaded without a subscription or open access on the Arthroscopy Journal's website at arthroscopyjournal.org.